0: And welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. I'm Finn Arne And we're very happy to welcome today Michael Guida, who is Research Associate at the University of Sussex, to discuss his book, Listening to British Nature, Wartime, Radio, and Modern Life, 1914-1945. to it came out with Oxford University Press, or it's coming out with Oxford University Press uh, now in 2022. So Michael, we'll give it over to you.
1: All right. Thank you, Dolly. Thank you, Finan. Um so Dolly, I've got about 15 minutes. Is that right? Great. Um well uh to keep on time, I will I I will I will start reading. So listening to British Nature then. Um the book's an attempt to position the sounds of the natural world as a significant intervention in modern British experience. It argues that birdsong, water, trees had something to say and were listened to. And also that conceptual and abstract sounds like silence and quiet were strongly associated with the natural world, including the benevolent cosmos. Now the problem for someone who wants to understand the place of nature's voice in the period 1914 to 1945 is the noise. Wartime aside, Britain's industrial productivity, even in the economic depressions, ran to an established machine tune. The internal combustion engines of trains and motor transport were creating a new daily clamour as It enabled clerical workers to shuttle between home and office. And there were new sonic technologies in the air, telephony, gramophones and most importantly, radio of the domestic realm. Of course, most Britons also lived in cities and towns removed from the rural. So the question arises here, where was the natural or where was nature amid all this bustle, noise and perhaps even some anxiety? Contemporary observers in the 1920s and 30s certainly seemed to have some anxiety um, and they made much about the noisiness of life. The philosopher C.E.M. E. Jode, C. E. M. Jode sorry, wrote about the ubiquity of Negroid music, he called it, played by the careless. Aldous Huxley heard a crisis of noise rooted in a problem of dispersed attention of the masses and he identified in them a desire for all amusement and consumption to kill thought. Medical men saw noise as a danger to psychological health and a threat to vital nerve energy. Lord Thomas Horder invented the Anti-Noise League in 1933 to lobby for quieter machines and better manners in their use. So modern, civ- modern civilization seem to be degrading the classical ideas of uh, civilization. Um, in the last decade, a significant scholarship has examined the politics, aesthetics and cultures of urban sound making. James Mansell's important book, The Age of Noise, is key here, looks at the same period that I do, um, and so is Karen Bitsterveld's study of public noise debates in Europe, uh, which is called Mechanical Sound. So with this context of modern noise in mind, I became intrigued to know how people survived in the din. I found anthropologist Anthony Jackson's question galvanizing. He asked, what sounds were significant to society? And with this question, I've paid attention to the sounds that were valued and sought out, not so much the ones that were imposed or endured. Of course, all sounds exist together and are processed together, the new and the old, the modern and the traditional, the natural and the unnatural, the sounds of nature and man-made sounds. So, I consider the sounds of the na- of the natural world in relation to the changing modern sound environment. The book examines how civilian soldiers, radio listeners, doctors, ramblers, and bird lovers paid attention to the natural world in the context of their modern surroundings. So, listening is my mode of inquiry because this is a way of paying attention to one's environment, knowing its status, uh, its security and its health. It's a spherical sense extending around the body and the more passive mode of hearing in contrast to listening is always on. It's an intimate sense that requires proximity though one can be touched at a distance by sound. When humans talk about immersing themselves in the natural world, they refer to listening as much as looking. The composer R. Murray Schafer theorized in the 1970s, a world characterized by an ecological sonic hierarchy with natural sounds as the most enriching and man-made sounds, industrial sounds as a kind of pollution. While appealing, to those interested in attending carefully to the natural world, Schaeffer's moralizing of sound does not acknowledge how how the modern world is a messy mix of vibrations old and new. To understand early 20th century human experience of the natural world, I have instead considered all sounds and how different sonic framings affect interpretation and meaning making. So by examining listening experiences, for example, in the book of um, wartime and recovery from war, um in the ideas of wireless broadcasting through the ether in popular walking and rambling movements of the 1920s i show how modern sounds framed and remade nature's age-old sounds the noise of modernity did not drown out the natu- natural world rather it triggered new ways of feeling about nature its energies and its pleasures the sounds of nature were engaged with despite and sometimes because of the apparent noise They were pulled towards those who needed alternative sonic milieu in which to live and progress. In terms of sources, alongside institutional records and archives, I've drawn upon letters, diaries, memoirs and autobiographically orientated books to reveal what E.P. Thompson described as the raw material of experience needed to construct social and cultural history. What I've found is that many urban Britons promoted the sound of nature they like most to be important in their lives. Ideals of the rural and the modern were not opposites, but interconnected. For instance, BBC broadcasting, rambling, motoring and the growth of the suburbs brought urban lives into contact with rural sensations. My key point in the book is to show that paying attention to nature with the ears was a way of being modern, not just coping with it. Seeking out the sounds, silences, and quietudes of the natural world created a pleasurable, present tense reality that complemented other sensory experiences that may, have not, that may not have been so pleasant. Though nostalgia for an idealized pastoral past was at play to some extent, Engaging with nature's voices was not so much a retreat to the past as a construction of future continuity. Svetlana Baum makes the point that the needs of the present determine the memories and the myths of the past and have a direct effect on the imagination of the future. Being modern requires a constant dialogue between past, present and future. The voices of birds in particular, I have found in this study, grabbed attention in the present, but pointed ahead, echoing into the future, speaking of the ongoingness of life for many British people. So to get a bit more specific and look at some examples from the book, the first chapter opens with soldierly experience of the Western front and its sonic environment. I'll come back to this in some detail in a moment. Secondly, I look at the only treatment for shell shock for which there was some consensus In terms of efficacy, that was the quiet rest, that was of quiet rest in proximity to gardens, trees, or ideally the countryside. Here, pastoral rhythms and work routines were employed to heal the psychological damage of war. It seemed to work for officers and was also provided on a limited basis for some rank and file men. I focus on a newly created therapeutic community uh, formed during the war in Hampshire called. Enham Village Centre that was said in 1920 to exude a beneficent alluring quietude. After the war, silence including armistice, the Armistice prescription of two minutes of silence was often too much to bear and was sometimes reported as being occupied by the rustle of leaves or the crease of pigeon wings, particularly when the Armistice silence was uh, recorded. Uh, and played live on the radio. Um, Moving further into the 1920s, uh, chapter three, uh, I I analyzed John Reith's radio programming to reveal that broadcasting of a nightingale's voice was a way to demonstrate that the potentially noisy new apparatus in the corner of so many homes could actually distribute the transcendent sounds of the natural world. I also show that Reith the chief of the BBC's public service broadcasting experiment was convinced, along with scientific authorities, cultural commentators, and poets, that the medium of radio that worked with electromagnetic waves connected listeners, um, connected listeners at home to cosmic goodness up above. The interwar period is well known for a popular boom in outdoor leisure movements, including rambling, which I will discuss too in a moment. But the book finishes with an evaluation of the potency of birdsong as a national instrument of war and national identity, as well as a signal of civilization. So very quick scheme of the book. I just wanna concentrate on a couple of examples now. Um, First, Western Front Listening, and then a little bit about rambling. So trench listening then. When dug into the ground of France and Belgium, men found that listening was a key way to understand what was going on. Seeing was often difficult and dangerous. Under these conditions, civilian soldiers quickly learned how to distinguish between different kinds of ordnance and their source. This sonic mindedness, as Jean has called it, also drew into perception sounds of relief and sounds that were a release from violence. One of the sound soldiers noted in their writing alongside the formidable punch of shelling was the song of birds, sparrows, blackbirds, thrushes, cuckoos and larks and nightingales, all made their mark on the minds of men entrenched in the soil. Soldiers found the chiming sounds of birds overhead meant many things to them. A few expressed consternation that a bird had anything to sing about amid the chaos of the front. But most read into birdsong optimism and resilience in sounds they recognised from home. Singing birds were determined companions who carried on like men in the most trying of circumstances. They sang out in defiance of the bombs, it seemed. They were patriotic symbols of British fighting spirit. All these ideas sustained fighting men. They spelt out a rhythm to the days. Skylocks were up there in the, sorry, Skylocks were up in the sky in the morning, at the morning stand-to, and nightingales sung out at night. Sometimes birdsong was the only sound from nature that felt good. The wind in the trees whipped with the sound of bullets, the rustling of leaves or grass could be the enemy approaching. Silence could fill with anticipation and fear. Sound of a lark singing free high overhead, lifted eyes upwards, away from the gruesome stasis of the Trent scene where the imagination could take off. Many men wrote how birds could take their minds back to their garden or to loved ones, or upwards into the cosmos. For example, Robert Sterling, a lieutenant in the Royal Scots Fusiliers, wrote this to his friend in Glasgow, small quote: At the same time, a lark began to sing in the sky above the trenches. It seemed almost incredible at the time. But now, whenever I think of those nest builders and all that cyclist song, they seem to repeat in some degree the very essence of the normal and unchangeable universe, carrying on, unhindered and careless amid the corpses and the bullets and the madness. So, when the terrestrial environment had been defiled by human chaos, a tiny bird pointed to the hope in the grand scheme of nature continuing into the future. Second example from a chapter, of the, from, um, from a chapter in the book about rambling, which is walking in the countryside for pleasure. In the 1920s and 30s, rambling was a particularly popular pursuit spanning all social classes. Scholars usually concentrate on the politics of land access and the freedom to roam debates, but here I argue that what galvanized people to ramble was pleasurable access to the sensuousness of the land, more than the principle of access itself. Ideas about escape from urban and industrial life that primary and secondary texts tend to dwell on, forget the importance of the destination, that is, the bodily immersion in the whole outdoor environment. This is what I find young men are after on their rambling weeks off from work up high on the Derbyshire moors, a full repertoire of sensory experience that can't be had in everyday life. Of course, this is not just about listening to nature but a multi-sensory engagement of the body and mind. In this chapter, I consider how (coughs) the senses operate in search of what I think of as the sensuousness of nature. David Abraham's work is influential here for me. From their diaries, we know that those young men in Derbyshire relished the direct and prolonged contact with the air, with weather, water of the streams they forded and skinny dipped in, the moonlight, and the rocks they squeezed between in their caving expeditions. Women also rambled together and with male company and alone. Nan Shepherd insisted on being alone on the Cairngorm Mountains of Scotland during the 1920s, 30s and 40s. And in her book, Living Mountain, reveals a commitment to luxuriating in the smells and roughness of heather, the activity of bacteria and the high cries of the swift all this animated the scenery for shepherd who sensed even the grinding of rocks underfoot her experience of walking high up involved her entire being a fragment here to illustrate what i mean walking thus hour after hour the senses keyed one walks the flesh transparent but the body is not made negligible but paramount flesh is not annihilated but fulfilled one is not bodiless but essential body i have walked out of the body and into the mountain this is more than an immersion in nature i think it's a kind of metaphysical merger yet i don't think shepherd was alone in this kind of experience necessarily i think it was not uncommon for walkers to feel this way in some kind of ways when exposing the body and the mind to nature stimuli. So I'm going to wrap up uh, by returning to the idea that listening to nature sounds was strongly linked to notions of being a modern citizen. Britain was believed to have a cherished set of national sounds, we've considered some here, and in the next war These sounds were put to work to secure the moral to secure the morale of citizens on the home front. Recordings of British birdsong were broadcast to 30 million radio listeners throughout the war, for example. And the propaganda film made by Humphrey Jennings and Stuart McAllister called Listen to Britain was made up of a tapestry of sounds and images of modern technology and human industriousness, together with fields of swooshing wheat and gentle voices singing. All of these elements worked together in concert. Nature's sounds had been and would continue to be part of the national character and the future prospect.
2: Thank you, Michael. Um, I really appreciate the... You know, this attention to this multi-sensory and bodily experience of nature that you've traced in uh, in, in your book and that we hear now in your presentation, uh, and I also like the uh, I mean the the approach to listening to nature as a way of well coping with modernity also because uh, a lot of what i've read about sounds studies come from history of technology where they focus on in a way the soundscapes of modernity so it's the city it's technology and not so much the rest uh, and and from that of course there's a number of things we can discuss and uh, one of them i think would be no, the way you present it, uh, the sounds of nature becomes, I mean, it sounds like it was always a good thing. But did nature sounds also have a negative character? I mean, in a way, is there some parallel to the, the visual culture approach to nature and wilderness where it went from something terrifying? becoming something with positive aesthetic qualities do you see something like that in with sounds and listening too
1: uh it's a it's a nice point thanks for this yeah yes i mean you're you're right to point this out because in some ways it's too simple isn't it to suggest that nature sounds are always good things um and i alluded to a few suggestions that you know a singing bird in the wrong context of the 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 trenches is of course frankly the wrong sound um, and the, 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 this comes up in the sources um, uh, what else what else is there um, I mean the, the the problem you know there are the, the key problematic sound I suppose is, is silence and th- this is always ambiguous and difficult to deal with I think for humans at any point in uh the study I've done um and you know what again it's a wartime con- context but but it's the 1920s so w- one of the things that happens in the in the armistice silence is that is that the the the, the, the impossible sound of silence becomes something that people associate with other sounds Small sounds, and I think this notion of quietude is quite an interesting sound that then becomes attached to this notion of of, of silence. Um, but it's still not quite ans- answering what you're asking, which is: Are there any natural sounds um, that are reported as bad? I'm wondering think- a bit about uh, wind, for example. Uh,
2: do you see people talk about wind, which is also something physical, of course. It's not just a sound. Yeah
1: yeah i I don't talk about wind very much, I have to say. I would like to have talked about wind and waves, um, but I you know the sources I had didn't really work with this too much. So yeah, I mean, I think in some ways there is a contrast here between the sort of noise of modernity and the positive um, refreshment um, and alternatives of the natural world that seem to be stabilizing and suggest continuity um not just in relation to the past but also suggest a a kind of future um but yeah it's it's a good it's a good point and i i need to think more about um what the challenges might have been in this period in relation to listening to 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 nature you know i i think some bird sounds of course are not as pleasant as others so you know there there are complaints about as we complain today about seagulls. So bird song is a nice is a nice sound, but of course, many birds don't sing, many call, and those aren't always met with favorable responses.
0: Well, so I was wondering, um, you mentioned the birds calling and, and singing there, and you had an example where um the commentator was talking about different birds appearing at different times of the day, right? So, you know, mm. certain birds sing in the morning and other birds sing at night. Um, and I was wondering though about seasonality because it's something that we just noticed this weekend because the starlings are back. And mm. so the starlings have started um, their very morning, very early morning, um, you know, calls singing um, and they're very loud, but it, it, it happens only now because, because now they're coming back after the winter. So do people, say something about the soundscape and how it changes over the year in your sources
1: um well i mean not to too, talk too much about bird song but, but of course bird song is very much associated with this kind of renewal of seasons and even even in the trenches you know perhaps sh- shockingly we find that men, men, men are there for long enough to kind of understand that you know they've they've heard this before and it and it and this is a kind of um they're part of a sort of rhythm um and they and again this is of course felt as to be a a positive uh signal uh that that nature carries on even even uh despite human endeavors so um yeah there is there is there is a certain amount of seasonality i suppose with sounds in relation to um the rhythm it signifies uh but I don't think I was really particularly picking up, you know, winter sounds um or summer sounds. I mean, what one of the things that I that Ludwig Koch, a bird song sound recordist who I write about in the in the in the last, the fifth chapter, he talks about um he, he talks about uh, uh, the the he, he talks about the ways in which different birds sing in different ways during the year. Um, So he talks about the, the, you know, August falls very quiet as birds stop worrying about asserting their territorial rights and breeding rights and do other things. Um, So there are suggestions of, of seasonality.
2: I think it connects nicely with uh, the point you made just before about uh, birds and gulls not being what people think of as the most pleasant thing. But for me, you know, this coming of the gull sounds, that's like spring to me. It's always been, you know, living in the north. When the gulls are back, then it's like, oh, yeah, this is spring. So it's always been a very positive thing for me to have them. But but yes, it's individual. We have some questions now in the chat. Uh, Gabriella.
3: Hi, thanks so much. I can't wait to read your book. I'm really excited about um, the way you're framing this. And I especially really like, because I, I work on the sensory history of taste. And so I really like that you're talking about this multi-sensorial, um, because when I think about taste, it's sort of this very complicated that that engages your other senses as well as what mm-hmm. goes on in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, but but my, my question is, I'm also working with Gerard Fitzgerald on a paper um, Called they learned to hear and they learned to spin about um, building textile factories in rural spaces in about the same time period in the New South in the United States, and so one of the things is is these these tech, these modern textile mills are far um, uh, they're they're shaky they're noisy they're hot um, mm-hmm. and, and these are rural people who are coming into the factory. So my question is really about like your actors, is there this rural urban or this learning, this this learning about the noisiness coming from quieter or quote unquote, more natural places of rural England coming into the modern cities and then kind of seeking solace out? Hmm.
1: I'm not sure because you know to be honest I think a lot of a lot of the sources I work with are urban largely urban uh town dwellers or city dwellers and of course most most britons at this point are of that type um so I haven't worked with rural people who have moved into the city to work in factories um so I'm I don't know um, how those contrasts I don't know how how those contrasts might work actually. Um, I think I'm really taking a sort of urban century perspective, I think in when I think about uh, listening to the radio, which is of course not an exclusively urban habit, but largely urban um, or you know, rambling, isn't only something that townies do and city folks do, um, but I think there's there's quite a significant skew in that direction. I mean, what you talk about in terms of textile factories is interesting because, of course, there's there's similar industries in the north of England, which are plagued by these kinds of overbearing sensory inputs, heat and dust and uh noise um and the concerns there are always about efficiency and there are there are government surveys to understand how to best make uh, workers perform even even in those even in those kind of challenging environments work environments um did i did i get close to answering your question there, gabriel i don't think i did really i, d- I don't think i've i've really connected rural workers uh, and their experience of bringing their kind of ideals about how sound should be into the factory of the workplace, actually.
2: I have a follow-up question that uh, could maybe help us down that path. Because I'm I'm wondering a bit about um, this idea of learning to listen and the knowledge about the things that you're listening to. How so do you see how important that was to people? I mean, I think particularly you can see it in bird watching. You, you know, you can mm-hmm. identify birds by listening to them. But, uh, but there's also, in general, you know, the familiarity of hearing particular sounds that you associate with particular things. I mean, there's an emotional aspect to it, but there's also this, this knowledge aspect. Yeah. Yeah, that is that kind of bird, and that is that kind of bird. Um, mm. how important is this to I mean the experience and the value of, of
1: listening to nature, you think? Well, I'm I'm sure it's I'm sure it's important, but it's very hard to know how ordinary people think about that. But I think if we you can certainly look at ex, you know, expert sound recordists and ornithologists, they they have a lot to say about this. So they, they kind of distinguish between this kind of notion that bird sounds are often pleasurable to everyone, to all kinds of people without any tuition required, with, with no sense of needing to know anything, that bird song is implicitly pleasurable to everyone. There's a quite a strong argument in the 20s and 30s for, for this from people like Julian Huxley um, and Max Nicholson um however um, they're also very interested in uh, citizens who can know their country better by paying attention closely to its sights and sounds um this is some this is a kind of citizenship idea that hails back to baden Powell in his training of boys in how to be not just miniature soldiers, but soldiers who understand their environment very well and understand all all of the sort of sensory inputs that are happening. So um, moving back into the twenties and thirties, particularly the thirties, Ludwig Koch, who is a um, German Jewish exile who comes to Britain and becomes the expert on British birdsong and records British birdsong um he's he's really interested in, in both aspects so he's interested in birds as performers and as sort of mini miniature musicians he's a musician himself in background um but he but he also works with um he, he also he also works with more scientific minds like nicholson and and um and huxley to produce sound books which are partly about building knowledge to understand the exact um, structures and rhythms and tones of birdsong. And he issues gramophones with a little book that gives you quite specific advice on what to listen to and how the structure of a song does work. Um, And then he goes on to argue that, yes, once you have some knowledge, then then probably you can you know, take even greater pleasure in knowing what you're listening to. So there are there are these kinds of arguments. How deeply that gets into culture is hard to know. I think these are mostly kind of expert ideas or ornithological ideas.
2: Thanks. So we have a question from Sean.
4: Hi, uh, thanks Mike, I really enjoyed that. And I'm, I too am looking forward greatly to, to your book. Um, When you're talking, I I kept thinking of Rachel Carson, which is a bit later in the 20th century than your period. But but Silent Spring is such a evocative title and it it foregrounds, you know, sound and birdsong and the importance of birdsong. And in a way, I mean, although the title talks about sound, I mean, it's a sort of absent presence in the book itself. Carson doesn't really actually <laughs> then talk very much about about birdsong. It's more about color and movement um, yeah. and people's kind of connections. I mean, in some of the sources she uses, there's a little bit of reference to you know keeldirs singing on the marsh and so on. But um, and so, but the sense of loss she's conveying is is obviously dramatized around sort of that loss of the sound. But I wonder whether her although she doesn't talk about sound in detail, whether her argument, I mean, her, her approach sort of confirms your argument in the sense that it, in America there must have been a similar interest in in that nature sounds and the importance of them in, in shaping kind of modern ideas of, of, of healing the wounds of modernity, but also connecting in a modern way with the natural world around you. Because she couldn't really say that. She couldn't really evoke the, the tragedy of, of loss of birdsong, if it hadn't already become sort of an integral part of at least some people's lives. So just an observation, really, that, that I wonder whether there are parallels, whether you know of any parallels in, say, in the States, whether there were similar movements around around birdsong. Because, I mean, the new ornithology is a sort of transatlantic phenomenon. So, mm. so some of that presumably was also happening in the States. Anyway, that's, it's just an observation, really, and a thought
1: yeah i mean the, the 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 sound of nature being a signal of health i think has sort of in the period i'm looking at really in britain has has more sort of um instinctive connotations really rather than anything scientific so there is there is a sense that nature sounding out calling out is a suggestion of its health and vital, vitality um i mean you uh, You know, of course, Bernie Krause's work, which is, you know, even when is that 80s, 90s and and continuing in relation to studying scientifically the sound of healthy environments or not so healthy environments, I think is interesting too to consider. Um, And of course, his way of visualising. Healthy environments and sonify them and showing how environments that look good logged environments that look like they've been restored are absolutely not the pristine once uh one uh, uh, habitats they once were um yeah interesting thank you sean we have
2: another question from uh, michael here i'm
5: just gonna all right. <clears throat> sorry I was gonna try and show my face. <laughs> oh go on then.
0: Sorry, sorry, we have those off. <laughs> <Go
5: ahead. laughs> I was thinking I'm I'm bad at this normally, but it it this this thing's not obeying me, so it's okay, don't worry. <laughs> um
1: switched off, Michael, don't worry.
5: It's all right, I don't need to. I've been um teaching this morning on this uh mechanism, so uh, um as you know, Mike, the 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 book is a is a wonderful book actually, and it's it's really elegantly written, I think. And I've got the copy, you see, so I'm I'm reading through it. <laughs> and I was just thinking of of, of actually um, answer question uh, the first one, which is about kind of unpleasant sounds, and and mm. I was thinking in terms of your first chapter on birdsong over the trenches, which is Kind of period i'm writing about now i suppose and 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 we know that I'm, i've always was surprised how many people referred to birds birds in the trenches because my my kind of impression was well how could he hear them <laughs> and obviously there's not shelling all the time and mm. and i think on one of the pages you you do a thing about looking up from the trench you know because trenches were deep and and, and uh, people lived in them for a long time um, and I kind of thought it's what people don't tend to talk about so much but is there in the literature is actually the sound of rats in the trench and there's a kind of there's a really interesting parallel wasn't it between looking down and hearing these rats that are eating you or eating everything in sight and then looking up at the birds as a kind of of, almost like a metaphor of Mm. nature violence and the trench and and i wondered whether you could say a little bit about that i have found two examples and i find this hard to believe where soldiers said they could hear lice as well Now, I don't know whether that's possible, um, you know, maybe there's so many of them or maybe it's the rubbing. They don't actually hear the animals themselves, but whatever. Anyway, but the, that notion about, you know, kind of violent nature. And I, and I think also, you were kind of hinting at that as well, I think, weren't you, in terms of uh, the sound of rain and stuff like that, where uh, when you're exposed involuntarily, I suppose. Uh, there's that nice quote by adorno isn't there years ago where he he says you know you can you can tell the state of someone's mind as they're lying in bed and hearing the rain beating on on the ceiling on on the roof Uh, uh, if they feel safe if, if they feel quite happy it's because they're feeling secure if they feel threatened it's because they're insecure and so that so the the, the sound is always mediated through the culture to some extent but anyway
1: <laughs> yeah My, Michael thanks for reminding me about rats I'd forgotten about them um of course they one gets the impression they're everywhere um in the trenches and they there's certainly a kind of a they kind of a, a fragment of nature that's that's despised so yes, they're a good example of a an unpleasant bit of nature um david jones i think writes in his long kind of extended poem work about the scrut scrutting of of um rats at night nibbling away so they are they are a kind of horror of of the day and the night i think um the, the interesting thing about horrible thing perhaps when we consider rats is that there was a kind of inversion of a kind of reversal of of um of uh the kind of ecology the food chain where humans in the trenches were at the bottom rats were in the middle and and owls were at the top um kind of triumphant and the most successful in this kind of new uh new new order of of wartime so yeah you're right Rats. Rats should be considered. Um, they only appear in that chapter. They they don't come up again. But yeah, it's um, a good reminder. There are some nasty things.
0: Yes, it's true. I, I remember staying in a in a house um, where I was staying overnight, and it was kind of winter. And normally the house is only there in the summer, but. I was up most of the night because I was just listening to the mice in the walls, running by the, running by the bed. So that, that kind of sound um, gives an entire different Yeah. Uh, nature feeling. Um, I was wondering, however, about the radio part. Um, so you have radio in, in the title and you mentioned this um, playing of birdsong on the radio. So I was wondering if they had, you know, did they have programs that were dedicated to, you know, your ramble in the countryside and and they somehow recorded sounds or, or, yeah. What kind of radio programs were these that would have, you know, been able to bring nature into people's living rooms uh, Mm. with their big radio, right? That the whole family gathers around to hear the radio program.
1: Yeah, well, John Reith was very interested in having uh, science programs of all sorts, and I think I think he saw natural history as a as an interesting part of the scientific realm that he wanted to be exposing people to in relation to kind of uh, cultural output that he he felt uh, the BBC's public service offering was was all about. Um, But generally, these programs wouldn't have any sound on them. The the first kind of big sound event in terms of broadcasting the sounds of the natural world um, happens in 1924. It's quite a kind of well-known folktale of the BBC when when a nightingale sings along with Beatrice Harrison, uh, who's a famous cellist, working with figures like Delius, and she finds that, I mean, as the story is told, that when she practices in her garden in Surrey, um, which Gives on to some woods that Nightingale sort of sing along with her. And somehow she manages to persuade Reith that this would be a great idea if he could send the boys down with the microphones and stuff, and this could be broadcast. And so, in some ways, it's a kind of technical, uh, it's kind of technical triumph, if you like. But I think what Reith really likes about it is that he sees this as a way of using his medium this sort of new noisy medium of radio as a way to demonstrate that uh, it, it has all sorts of magnificent potential potential that nobody could have dreamt of who could have thought that a nightingale could come into your sitting room um, at 11 o'clock on a Monday night um, and the success of that experiment in terms of the you know the public response meant that every every May you um, the same the same the same formula was enacted uh i think after a while beatrice harrison gets fed up of having to do this this show and i think she gets too associated with that so i think sometimes it's just the nightingale uh but they sit but this tradition carries on so there are these ideas you know this this kind of this idea happens but i think there's a there's a huge passion and interest in getting radio out into the field and pulling in you know the sounds of nature rather than uh, sending out the busyness of London and modern music and all these kinds of sounds into the provinces there are there are discussions and debates about you know what's the best balance to to have there um, and then you know the other the other big big moment, I suppose, of bringing birdsong onto the radio is the the moment I mentioned with Ludwig Koch, where he he plays his records that he's been recording in 1936 and 1937. And he's he has a job between 1941 and 1945. Um, f- where he has five minute programs, 10 minute programs and ultimately 15 minute programs, he gets more and more airtime because people love love his Unusual fruity German voice and the sounds of British birds, um, which he which he for the first time has captured in in really quite amazing fidelity. Um, So these these are kind of big moments, um, but yeah, I mean there are there are but there are all sorts of experiments about broadcasting from the zoo, um, which happens. um, So I, I think as a as a medium. A, sonic, a new sonic medium. I think all 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 sounding things are potential um, of potential interest to bring into the home. I'm wondering then if you can make a parallel
2: with you know what BBC Nature is doing nowadays with their TV shows, where they, I mean, they really stress the uh, you know the technological sublime of what they are able to do and what they're able to see and to show the viewers. Then that's, I mean, it's kind of this this high tech approach to it. So do you see similar things then with the, the sound recordings in the time period you look at where they stress, you know, upgrading, getting the best microphones, the highest fidelity, do listeners do the same thing that, oh, I actually need a better radio in order to hear this in a better way, better speakers and so on.
1: How, how,
2: how important is that? Do
1: we see any traces of that? Uh, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know how the that's a really interesting question about how the kind of output of radio, whether it's music or speech or or animal sounds, creates a demand for for kind of technological upgrades in the home. I, I, I don't know. Um, what I do know is that sound recordists are always at the front of um, sound technology and and that changes quite quickly. Um, Ludwig Koch in the 30s, he's using, he's using electronic microphones, electrical microphones and, uh, and tape ultimately, I think electromagnetic tape ultimately, um, but in, but in this period, I mean, the technology is still quite crude. For example, the, the BBC are recording very few of their own programs. Um, it's just too hard to do. Um, and the technology is not quite there, but one of the things that happens with people like ludwig koch is that when they do record they are absolutely interested in a kind of sound specimen as opposed to a sort of ambient soundscape of the dawn chorus for example i mean koch does record that kind of sound of groups of birds singing but i think there is a pressure on the technology to be good enough to be able to um create a sound sample, a sound specimen for a robin outside of all of the potential environmental noises that he complains are impinging. So there, of course, there are aircraft in the sky at that time. Um, there are motorbikes zooming by. So I think his frustration, this is more about his kind of process perhaps than the technology, is to isolate sounds um, in a sort of scientific way, but also in a in a way that they can be listened to Carefully to build knowledge, as you mentioned earlier.
2: Yeah, and I actually wanted to ask about this. You, you use the concept of soundscape uh, here, so do you talk about the use this concept in the book to talk about soundscapes?
1: Not really. I mean, I think I I, I haven't found the soundscape concept particularly informative to this work. Um, but I I mention and think about uh, R. Murray Schaefer because signal um, an interest in natural sound and relate it to you know anthropogenic sound if you like um, but of course he's not really prepared to acknowledge that humans are humans and he doesn't really want to talk about and think about a uh, a holistic uh sound environment produced by all kinds of creatures he's i think he's His interest is really in creating hierarchies and educating listeners uh, and educating sound makers in how to behave better. And I think that's not particularly productive for me when I'm thinking about how did people listen and what did they uh, experience when they did listen?
2: Yeah, Um, I'm wondering then, I mean, in relation to that, if we're thinking of this as kind of You know, tapestries of sound that get woven together. You have all these natural sounds, you have some, you know, dissonant sounds, unwanted sounds from modern society. But do you find, could you find examples in situations where some of these modern sounds become a positive part, kind of through nostalgia, for example? in the countryside we hear in the backgrounds with you know the wind and the birds and the trees there's also some tractors and that remind people about their their origins mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that I mean well can, I mean
0: certainly train sounds trains, yes. are, are a particular one that for me right hearing the train horn going off is actually uh mm. that was always seen as a positive in my family because my dad was a big train guy <laughs> So, so, you know, that was always a positive um, sound.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I think, um, I think all sounds in many people's minds kind of coexist and they're they're not necessarily in competition. So I've forgotten the name of the um, the LCC uh, scholar in London who anyway, his favorite sounds project looks at this notion of, you know, how how do people kind of rank um, sounds in their lives and birdsong is, you know, comes up in the same place as tube sounds and train sounds and 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 many other modern sounds. And I, and I think what I'm kind of arguing in the book is that the modern soundscape, if you like, um, I don't particularly use that word, but the 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 modern sound realm is absolutely what is setting a context for nature and for natural sounds but it doesn't drown it doesn't drown those sounds out actually it it recontextualizes them it may make them more important um it may give them new meanings um and similarly when one indulges and listens to natural sounds one then has a different sense of the modern and other kinds of sounds so i think i think there's a kind of a dialogue continuous dialogue going on there between what well, we see to be modern as we seem to and um, we see to be traditional or natural
2: all right so this might be too early to ask this question then but now that this book is done what is next for you, you <laughs> Continuing with sound or uh
1: yes i'm continuing sound um I'm not quite sure what's next. I mean, I'm working on a project with a with a colleague at um, Cambridge University called um, Winged Worlds, which is a um is participating in this project, thankfully. Um, which is a which is a collection of uh, work around uh, the relationship between bird life and spatiality, uh, migration, um, concepts of the sky and the air above us, which is coming together really nicely. So I'm working on that. I, I'm getting increasingly distracted by the idea of, of caged birds and how they have become extinct in our, at least in British culture, but were once probably the most common pet, if you like, in the home, and spend classes, although the kinds of birds you would have were often determined uh by um of course the amount of money you had but there was there were singing birds often in east london and more exotic and showy colorful birds in west london for example so i'm i'm interested in in perhaps tracing how caged bird habits keeping cage birds as singing things as things that look good um as things that are part of the Empire Project um, fit into uh, changing um, habits in, in a city like London. So this might be something um, for me next.
0: Now, oh, that sounds great. I look forward to it. And uh, we just want to thank Michael Guida for coming and talking about his book, uh, which has the title Listening to British Nature, Wartime, Radio and Modern Life. 1914 to 1945, and it's out with Oxford University Press this year 2022. So thank you very much, Michael.
1: Thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Dolly. Thanks. uh, Thank you, Finan. All the best.